0: to receive 20% off your membership at onxmaps.com slash hunt and find more birds this spring. Hey, I just sat down with the owners and operators of Maui Nui Venison. They're on a mission to balance axis deer populations on Maui while giving back to the community and run a totally sustainable operation. For folks like me who want to get your own meat but aren't always successful, you can become a snack subscriber Get some Axis Deer Sticks sent right to your door. Visit MauiNuiVenison.com, that's M-A-U-I-N-U-I, Venison.com, and use promo code CAL for 20% off your first order. Outdoor adventure won't wait for engine problems. Things like hard starts, rough performance, and lost fuel economy are often caused by fuel gum and varnish buildup. Seafoam can help your engine run better and last longer. Simply pour a can in your gas tank. Hunters and anglers rely on Seafoam to keep their engines running the way it should the entire season. Pick up a can of Seafoam today at your local auto parts store or visit SeafoamWorks.com to learn more. That's SeafoamWorks.com to learn more. From Meteor's World News Headquarters in Bozeman, Montana... This is Cal's Weekend Review presented by Steel. Steel products are available only at authorized dealers. For more, go to steeldealers.com. Now, here's your host, Ryan Cal Callahan. The National Park Service uses 3500 miles of toilet paper in Yellowstone National Park every year. That's right. Folks, this is the kind of hard-hitting news you expect from Cal's Weekend Review. I'm here to deliver the facts. No crap. Yellowstone employees are stocking up on industrial-sized rolls of toilet paper in preparation for the explosive increase in visitors this summer. According to a recent announcement from the Park Service, there are more than 422 toilets at Yellowstone, and each one of them gets cleaned every day and restocked with that scratchy single-ply paper everyone loves to hate. Keeping everything clean during the summer can often be the number one or two biggest task, especially at the most popular service areas. But park staff put a smile on and roll with it. In 2021, more than 4.86 million people visited Yellowstone, which according to my calculations means that each visitor accounted for about four feet of TP. If you can't quite grasp that, 3,500 miles of toilet paper is enough to cover the distance from Key West to Seattle. If that doesn't float your boat, try this one. 3,500 miles of toilet paper means that you could TP the Empire State Building with several layers. 2021 was a record-setting year for national parks tourism, and 2022 could be more of the same. In any case, the Park Service will be ready to do visitors a solid and keep that toilet paper stocked. This week, the Mapland Act, ticks, carp, and so much more, but first I'm going to tell you about my week. And ladies and gentlemen, you just won't hardly believe it. But here's a highlight or two for you. I finally got to eat at Die Dewey. Or die do. I'm not even sure how he says it, but the food's fantastic. That's Chef Jesse Griffith's place in downtown Austin, Texas. They source everything, they make it all from scratch. It's unbelievable. And if you think that's unbelievable, I listened to Stranglehold. You know the song by Ted Nugent? Yeah. That one, and he was playing it. If you spent a lot of time in the high school weight room hoping to thicken up, you know, so you didn't get the snot beat out of you on the football field, then you probably know Ted Nugent's stranglehold. Anyway, Ted Nugent played it just for me. I mean, and the folks I was with, like Phil and Corinne and Steve, and he played it in his office. And his office is probably decorated exactly how you'd think. After that, we watched a scimitar-horned oryx charge a truck while defending a newborn calf, put my bare feet inside fossilized dinosaur footprints, drink Sotol, which is likely the base of the first beer ever made in North America, and makes a fine liquor when distilled. We did that at the Desert Door Distillery, and ate, again, at the food truck there called Eden West. Quail sandwiches, Neil Guy burgers, the list goes on and it is absolutely fantastic. I could fill up the whole podcast with it. We made her back downtown, watched old Joe Rogan embrace his new Austin, Texas home and his Austin, Texas crowd up on the comedy stage. And then Stephen Renella and I topped it off by entertaining the idea of setting up a table at the site of the coming soon-to-you Whole Foods here in Los Angeles, Montana, and soliciting signatures for a citizen's referendum that would turn Yellowstone National Park into a wilderness area. And then, of course, discuss the pros and cons of that one. Food, music, controversy, high fences, low fences, history, biology, paleontology, and anthropology, both modern and prehistoric, which is, I'm sure is just kind of Texas to some. But it made me happy to be home, mostly because I'm super proud, joyful even, to announce the return of the Land Access Initiative. For you longtime listeners... You'll recall the Shiloh Pond Project, where we, as in all of us, helped to close a much-needed funding gap to preserve in perpetuity public access and public land through a listener submission. Brent West of the High Peaks Alliance helped us identify the project, and all of us raised and donated $70,000 to help secure the land for American freedom. Now, we're doing it all again, And here is the really amazing news. We already have over $90,000 in the land access pot. So go to TheMeatEater.com, hit the conservation tab, and click on land access initiative to help us identify our next spot. All we're looking to do is provide more access to hunting and fishing for America. So get on it listeners can submit a place that needs more access for public hunting and fishing, you'll be a hero. Moving on to the legislation desk. Last week, the U.S. House of Representatives passed the Map-Land Act on an overwhelmingly bipartisan position of 414 to 9 votes. As we've covered several times on this program, the Map-Land Act would fund the digitization of public land data. This includes information related to legal easements on public land, boundary information, and transportation restrictions. Digitizing this information will help hunters and anglers more easily access public and identify thousands of public easements that aren't currently listed anywhere online. If that sounds like a good idea to you, get on the phone with your U.S. Senator and tell them to vote for S-904, the Map Land Act. Elsewhere in Washington, D.C., Utah Senator Mike Lee is about to introduce a bill that would make it easier for local governments to privatize public land. The bill hasn't been formally introduced, but a recent news report on The Spectrum lays out the basics. Dubbed the Houses Act, the legislation is being promoted as a way to ease the rising cost of housing by allowing developers to build homes on BLM land. Right now, BLM land can only be sold to private entities if there are no work or traffic rights. The land is isolated from other BLM land, and it was acquired for outdated purposes. Under Senator Lee's new bill, those guardrails go away. Only existing rights on a parcel of land would disqualify that property from being developed. The text of the bill hasn't been released yet, but if it's coming from Mike Lee's office, it isn't likely to help public hunting or angling. Keep your eyeballs peeled for the Houses Act, and we will too. Speaking of weird things from Utah, I have a few quick updates on the Utah Lake Island project I discussed in episode 120. To recap, an out-of-state company has submitted a proposal to create 34 man-made islands spanning some 18,000 acres on Utah Lake. The company, Lake Restoration Solutions, claims that their plan will create new residential housing for Utahns and improve water quality. In response to this proposal, the Utah legislature passed two bills this year. One would require that any remediation project be approved by the Utah Senate, House, and Governor, rather than just the Division of Forestry, Fire, and State Lands, which currently controls the process. Another bill creates the Utah Lake Authority, which will have more power than the current commission that oversees the lake. Both bills could create headaches for lake restoration solutions on the state level, but they're also facing a hurdle at the federal level. The company announced just last week that the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers will require an environmental impact statement. This is standard procedure for a project like this but it will allow a third-party contractor to verify or dispute the claims that Lake Restoration Solutions is making. So if you're one of the folks who keeps writing in on this issue, I think that's good news for the time being. If you want a bit more information on the history of this, please go back and listen to episode 120. Spoiler alert, I talk about poop. Up in Maine, it looks like Sunday hunting isn't going anywhere this year, the legislature's Inland Fisheries and Wildlife Committee voted 8-3 to on March 15 to oppose the bill, which means it's unlikely to be taken up in either chamber. A recent survey by the Maine Department of Inland Fisheries and Wildlife found that 34% of the general population supports Sunday hunting, while 69% of hunters support Sunday hunting. If landowner permission is required, support among the general population also rises to 45% which kind of says something about the state of Maine and the hunters there, right? kind of reminds you of um, somebody's folks saying like, well, did you guys have permission to go do that? Is it okay with Jimmy's parents if you go? Anyway, 11 states still restrict Sunday hunting in some way, but those laws are slowly being rolled back. Pennsylvania has been relaxing Sunday hunting restrictions on some days and for some species, and Virginia passed this year a bill that allows Sunday hunting on public lands. In other news, the U.S. Senate voted this month to make daylight savings time permanent. I don't know about you, but the time change always messes with my head. I'd welcome not having to think about losing or gaining an hour twice a year, but the bill has obvious benefits for hunters and anglers as well. Permanent daylight savings means an extra hour of sleep before you have to beat the whitetail to the tree stand and an extra hour in the evening to do a little angling or squirrel hunting after work. I'm kind of a fan of this bill, though I do understand that hunting and fishing aren't the only things we have to think about. I've seen some studies suggesting that more kids get in car wrecks having to drive to school on dark mornings, and apparently everyone hated it when we made daylight savings time permanent for two years in the 1970s. The measure will become law if the U.S. House votes in favor, but right now, it doesn't look like they'll be taking it up anytime soon. Moving on to the fishing desk. In Wisconsin this month, wholesale fish dealer Ping Lee was convicted for illegally selling invasive carp, the first case ever in the state for three particular non-native carp species. If you read this headline and saw the stock photo that went along with it, which is, of course, carp leaping out of the river with guys holding nets and boats and seeming to be no end to these fishy invasives, you could have been thinking, what the heck's going on? Who would get a ticket for this? Lots of states encourage anglers to go after and eat fish that are having a disproportionate impact on the landscape, so why not take the next step and be able to order wild-caught big head carp at that uh, romantic seafood place you're going to go to? you may be thinking, shouldn't we be celebrating Ping Lee as a trailblazer trying to solve a major ecosystem problem with haute cuisine? Unfortunately, Lee wasn't taking carp out of Wisconsin's rivers, and he's no folk hero. Farmed and wild-caught carp are already popular as a food fish, and they're most valuable when they're transported alive. In many retail markets, a shopper will select a live fish from a tank, and the fishmonger will dispatch it on the spot and that's exactly how some carp have spread so disastrously. Live fish truck to new areas that then escape and become established in the wild. The laws that Lee violated require wholesale fish dealers to transport fish already gutted or with their gills severed, proof that they are 100% dead and not going to go make more carp in places they shouldn't. In 2018 alone, Lee transported and sold over 9,000 pounds of fish that flouted these laws. For these infractions, Lee will pay more than $13,000 in fines, which is a lot of fish sticks down at the Rusty Scupper. Speaking of more fish than you can shake a fork at, two Kentucky anglers recently pulled in a 95-pound blue catfish out of the Ohio River. 11 more pounds, and they would have beat the state record, which was set in 2018. As reported in Kentucky Field Magazine, Michael Robinson and Terry Raymer have their catfish angling very dialed in. On March 15th in the past four years in a row, they have put a fish over 80 pounds in the boat. Further research on blue catfish angling turned up handline fisherman Zachary Gustafson, who, if the online outlet handlinefishing.com can be trusted, leaves Robinson and Raymer in the dust. Although we could not find another source verifying the feat, on June 5, 2015, Gustafson apparently pulled in a 107-pound blue catfish from the Potomac on 15-pound test and seems to have come away with all of his fingers, which is a win. If any listeners out there have more corroborating info on Zachary Gustafson, please, please write in. Over on the Fraser River up in beautiful British Columbia on March 6, fishing guide Yves Bisson and angler Dan Lawyer caught a white sturgeon estimated at 600 pounds and 11 feet long. Lawyer told USA Today that as he pulled the fish in and started to understand its proportions, he was, quote, shocked, surprised, excited, amazed, and scared. Dan, I can believe it. The Fraser is not a river you want to capsize a boat in, and that fish could do it. We know a lot about white sturgeon because a very thorough tagging program has been underway in the Fraser since 1997, and Bisson tagged this monster before releasing it. We know, for example, that sturgeon in the estuaries of the Fraser are remarkably sedentary, especially in the winter. A 2017 study found that 67% moved only 1.9 kilometers, or 1.18 miles per month. I clock more than that just going back and forth to the fridge all day. The estimated world record is also out of the Fraser. Believe it or not, this fish, caught by Chad Helmer, is thought to be a possible 1,000-pound sturgeon. And last stop on our fish roundup, is a major call to action. Don't sleep on this one. The Atlantic State's Marine Fisheries Commission is considering a new amendment to its striped bass management plan, and we anglers need to show up to make sure our interests are represented. For some of you, that sentence may have sounded like complete gobbledygook, so stay with me for a bit of background. Striped bass are a species as American as white-tailed deer. Many Native American groups established seasonal fishing villages on coastlines to catch migrating stripers, and the pilgrims of the Massachusetts colony used them for food and fertilizer to survive their first several years on an unfamiliar continent. Their sheer volume in this area astounded European observers. John Smith, one of the founders of Jamestown, wrote the following in 1614, I have seen such multitudes that it seemed one might go over their backs dry shod. That is, so many stripers that you could walk across them without getting your feet wet. Or maybe your brass-buckled shoes. Today, some people go after striped bass with yachts the size of McMansions, loaded down with Silicon Valley's worth of electronics. But other people have just as good a luck surf casting from the beach. These fish are so fun that they've been introduced all across the country. For a crash course in the joys of striped bass, head on over to the YouTube and watch yours truly and Joe Sermelli on episode one of DOS Boat season three. After the abundance that John Smith described, I bet you'll be able to predict what happened next. By the 1970s, after generations of overfishing and pollution, striped bass populations collapsed and everyone with an interest in the species, commercial fishing, the charter and guiding industry, anglers and conservationists, knew they needed to act. That's where the organization I mentioned earlier comes in, the Atlantic States Marine Fisheries Commission. Through collaboration and deliberation and votes and forcing of conservation measures, the ASMFC had put together the Fisheries Management Plan in 1981. By 1985, the first mandatory conservation measures were established, and they worked. By 1995, only 10 years later, the Atlantic Coastal Stripe Bass stocks were declared fully recovered. But we're not out of the woods yet. Now we're in a bit of a similar situation to the 70s. Striped bass populations are again headed downhill, and everyone who gives a crap is figuring out what to do through the ASMFC. The newest amendment to the Management Plan, Amendment 7, was approved for public comment earlier this year, and the draft includes a complex menu of options, some good, some bad. The good options would strengthen the plan's management triggers or the specific situations that require the ASMFC to act and would implement measures to rebuild the stock immediately and maintain abundance once that stock is recovered. The bad options would allow the commission to defer management action or remove important management triggers entirely. Atlantic striped bass are anadromous, meaning that, like salmon, they live much of their life in the ocean but migrate through estuaries into fresh water in order to spawn. Protecting that migration, and particularly female bass of reproductive age, is the key to healthy population levels. This is challenging with striped bass, as females have to reach 6 years old before they become mature and produce significant numbers of eggs. In certain years, this migration and reproduction are a big success, and these classes, as they're known, are the ones that establish a durable population that allows the stock to survive less successful years. Unfortunately, we have had a string of tough reproductive seasons without an abundant class lately. And so, protecting mature females is particularly important right now and in coming years. The most important measurement to determine whether the species is healthy or in trouble is female spawning stock biomass, or SSB. The other key metric is fishing mortality, and the draft amendment 7 includes options that set these indicators as triggers to action. Conservation groups, like backcountry hunters and anglers, are advocating for the quickest intervention if fishing mortality exceeds the current established threshold, or if the SSB continues to decrease. These SSB numbers have been going in the wrong direction since the mid-2000s and were due for another biomass report very soon. Amendment 7 could also determine if the ASMFC must implement a new 10-year plan to get spawning stock biomass back to a healthy level once these triggers are set off. As you can imagine, an organization this complex with this much responsibility tends to move, uh, deliberately. Fancy word for slow. Under the current management plan, the board is not required to initiate a rebuilding plan when a trigger is tripped. And that inaction is exactly what happened back in 2019 when the stock assessment indicated troubling declines, which is why Amendment 7 would require the board to implement a rebuilding plan within two years of any future incidents. To get mature female biomass back to where it needs to be, fishing mortality must go down which means effective catch and release. Not all catch and release is effective. Studies have shown that 9% of stripers released alive will die, which in 2019, for instance, was about 2.59 million dead fish, which is why proper handling education is part of Amendment 7. Now, this is as thin as I can make this argument. It's a very complex topic. We're skipping over a whole bunch of stuff. Like, uh, you know, how much the landscape has changed, water quality conditions, bait stocks. I urge you to go do some research and understand more. Head over to the news section of the BHA website and click on the article from March 23rd titled "Striped Bass Conservation Amendment 7 Priorities. If your curiosity flourishes from there, I cannot recommend enough the blog One oneanglersvoyage.blogspot.com where attorney and saltwater angler Charles Whittock goes through all the ins and outs of the striped bass recovery in, I would say, masterful detail. But do this fast, as the Atlantic State's Marine Fisheries Commission is taking public comment on Amendment 7 only until April 15. So send an email to comments, that's plural, at asmfc.org, urging the commission to recover the Atlantic striped bass and to adjust the management plan to ensure the stock stays abundant long-term. Moving on to the tick desk. That's right, it's turkey season, spring has sprung, and those little bloodsuckers are coming out for you. Female ticks, kept in a laboratory in New York, survived for a record-breaking 27 years. According to a paper recently published in the Journal of Medical Entomology, the ticks were deprived of food for eight of those years and one of them managed to reproduce four years after the last male had died. In 1976, Julian Shepard, an associate professor of biological science at Binghamton University, received a group of ticks collected from a semi-desert area of Kenya. He kept those ticks in a stable habitat, set up in his lab, and fed them on rabbits, mice, and drawn rat blood. Then, in 1984, he stopped feeding them altogether. The male ticks survived for four years without food, but three of the female ticks survived for another four years. At that point, Shepard started feeding them again, and two of them continued to survive until 2003. Even more amazingly, after Shepard started the feedings again in 1992, one of the females laid a batch of eggs. The last male had died four years earlier, meaning, and you may want to take a deep breath here, that she had stored the male tick sperm inside her over that time period, just, you know, for this type of occasion. At the time of the paper's publication, the ticks from the batch of eggs were still alive and well. 26 years after they were born, a statistic nobody wants to hear. It's horrifying. But wait, there's more. Shepard believes the longevity of these ticks is a record for any species of tick. This species, Argus brumpti, is a type of soft tick that hails from the drier areas of eastern and southern Africa. They feed on a wide variety of small to large mammals and lizards, and reside in shallow caves, rocky areas, or dust bath areas used by large mammals. Unlike North American ticks, Argus brumpti is not reported to carry any disease agents. However. Shepard reports from personal experience that its bite causes substantial, painful lesions, with after-effects sometimes persisting for many months and even years. So, one silver lining of the study is that you're not likely to run into any Argus brumpti while sitting in the North American woods with your slate call. Unless they get out. And you know they will. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Can you feel them crawling up your pant leg? Huh? Down your collar? Uh huh, uh huh. Fortunately, the species of ticks here in North America cannot live nearly as long. Most ticks take three years, which is two years, 364 days too long, to complete their life cycle. And they die if they can't find a host at each life stage. All of that to say be safe this spring, get some permethrin, some backwoods deet, coat your socks, coat your cuffs. Get a super comfy neck gaiter from First Light and douse that thing in deep. That's all I've got for you this week. Thank you so much for listening. Remember, write in at ASKCAL, that's askcal at themeateater.com, and let me know what's going on in your neck of the woods. The last thing I got to tell you, we flew into a tornado in Texas, and I guarantee those folks were looking for a clean, quiet, burly, super handy steel chainsaw you may be too. So go to www.steeldealers.com and find a local knowledgeable steel dealer near you. They'll get you set up with what you need, and they won't send you home with what you don't. Thanks again, and I'll talk to you next week.